0: Hello and welcome back to your friendly neighborhood podcast, Yoga After Dark. Today I have Vasu on the line, uh, Vasu Varadhan. Vasu is a, a teacher at NYU. She's been teaching there for 23 years in the area of media studies. And I am lucky enough that Vasu is also my student, my student in my Ashtanga Shala. So that is a great blessing to me and frankly, is a great blessing to everyone else I- in the community there as well. So welcome, Vasu. Glad to have you here.
1: Oh, thank you? you for having me. Thanks.
0: <laughs> so um, I want to, uh, so you wrote a book and and it's a memoir of your, your life from birth until the age of 16. Yes.
2: That's correct. Yeah.
0: And I read that book and, and many of uh, my, my students uh, have also read that book and it's absolutely fascinating and so uh, for those of you who can't tell because of her name, Vasu is an Indian woman, uh, you were born in India and then quickly moved to America because your father was in the UN and That's- then in your early teens moved back to India? What age did you move back to well,
2: India? In 1959, I was born in 47. I'm right after India got independence. So I went back in 1959 to, I come from Madras, now Chennai.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I went back when I was 12 and uh, got married at 16.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it turned out that I came right back to New York where <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> very, uh, very Hindu. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and it was
0: an arranged marriage. Yes, yes it was. and And you are still together.
2: Yes, we are. Yeah. And, and happy, I assume. <laughs> yeah, we've had our ups and downs like any couple. But yeah, we're a pretty close couple. Yep. We grew up together. Because mm-hmm. my husband was 22 when he married me. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, we you know we learned from each other you know i mean he was the teacher in the beginning and then i caught up <laughs> and <then> I, <laughs> I, I surpassed him <laughs> i wouldn't listen anymore
0: <laughs> it was very good <laughs> so um you know now right now when we're we're all in in quarantine in our homes um so you uh, being from a, or at least your uh, uh, your grandfather was a very traditional, led a very traditional Brahmin home. Yes. And so when you moved back to India and you you ended up getting your period for the first time, I would imagine that's kind of the first time you en- endured a quarantine of of some sorts. Yes. Could could you, tell, could you tell me and, uh, and, and the listeners about that?
2: I will. You know, just recently, in fact, I uh, was talking to my younger brother you know, on social distancing, and we were laughing at the, I guess, the Western way of talk, you know, using the term social distancing because when we did go back to India and I was uh, living under my grandfather's uh, roof, he was ultra-Orthodox. And you had to keep your distance from him, you know, uh, until you took your bath in the morning. You were considered polluted, dirty. He would say, don't come near me, because he, he would rise very early, take his bath, do his prayers. And um, so before he did his prayers, you know, he did not want anybody who hadn't had a bath to be in the vicinity, uh, you know, near him anyway.
0: Can I interject um, something, Vasu, just for, for those who might not be aware? So usually when you say bath in India, you mean bucketing water. Was, over, yes, right? bucket well water.
2: water. You draw water from the well. Uh, we had a well in the backyard and uh, he would go there with his loincloth and bathe and then change out there. Uh, he kept all his clothes um, on a rod and he wouldn't even touch his own clothing so he would use a pole to take his dhoti uh, what the men wear uh, you know wraps around the the waist he would use a pole take the dhoti off the pole and keep it in a separate spot until he had taken his bath and then use the pole (laughs) to retrieve the dhoti and then wear it So you know, he would, you know, when we talk about wearing gloves and disinfecting, you know, and of course my uh, younger brother and I found all of this very amusing, coming from, um, you know, New York as we did, and we never understood. So there were a lot of rules about not touching anybody, um, and so we. You know, uh, never really, nobody ever explained why that was so, but they, there's a word in Tamil called muddy, which means pure, and thutu, which means polluted. So those were the two words we learned very quickly, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, my aunt, while uh, uh, she was cooking, you know, we could not go into the kitchen
1: because
2: mm-hmm. uh, we were, even though we had taken a bath and everything else, Uh, we were not that pure to be able to go into the kitchen. (laughs) We would have to wait, you know, somewhere else. And she, uh, you know, if by any chance we touched her, she would immediately go and take another bath and clothing. Uh, And then, of course, uh, when the girl reaches puberty and she starts menstruating, um, they isolate her for three days in a room. And uh, you cannot mingle with anybody in the house, uh, you cannot eat with anybody, you're given your own vessels, they put it outside the door, and they move away, you have to open the door, <laughs> <laughs> you know, eat, and then you wash your own vessels, the vessels cannot be mixed with any of the vessels and the other uh, parts of, you know, that are used in the house. Um and so I, you know, again, nobody taught me anything. I just was told this is what you do. And so uh with all this social distancing now and washing one's hands, uh, we're beginning to realize that maybe there was something more to this uh in you know, in uh Indian culture than uh, you know we had thought uh that maybe these were Ways in which, in fact, to ward off you know infection, to ward off impurities, um, Although, again, I have to say this did have a lot of caste uh, you know connotations in terms of lower caste people uh, not being allowed to come into the house. Um, and you know, as far as I mean, the reason given for girls being uh, isolated uh, for those three days is uh, ostensibly to give them rest when they're bleeding, so that you know um, they can go through that three-day period without feeling exhausted. And so it's there were some underlying reasons for this.
0: It's quite a quite an enforced rest, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes,
2: it is. And it's hard when you're young. I would think I was 13, and you can't play with other girls, you know. And I think for me personally, I think uh, what always bothered me was that everybody knew. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, since uh, you know, they would see me, I couldn't enter through the front door of the house. I had to go through the side alley. And so all the neighbors, you know, there were no walls. We just had, you know, sort of uh, like barbed wire fences, but, or hedges. And, you know, people could see over it. And then they would all say, oh, so you have, you know, you're out of doors. That was the euphemism. (laughs) You're out of doors. So everybody kept track of my period better than I did.
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs> at least at least you were being uh, watched over, I suppose. I,
2: I was. So, you know, they would say, isn't it, isn't it that time of the month? <laughs> well, there was no need to keep a calendar. I could just ask my neighbor. And say, yeah, it's that
1: time.
0: <laughs> that, you know, that's one of the first things I noticed uh, when I first traveled to India was that in India, there's always someone watching. <laughs> Even if you don't think there is someone watching, there is always someone watching.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So,
0: so tell me, Vasu, I would, um, I don't know how you, you identify yourself and you can, you can tell me how you identify yourself, but I, I would identify you as a, as a modern Indian woman. And, uh, you know, I, uh, you all, when you come, of course, to the shala in the morning for practice, you're always in your kind of pajamas and kurta style type thing. Um, I, I was really amazed the first time I saw you out on the street later in the day. You you have full sari and you know beautiful uh, bindu on your forehead and always very nice jewelry and very very put together. And I thought, oh wow, Vasu, she must be going to some fancy function or something and and then you said oh no I just I just dress like this every day this is how I'm you know comfortable this is how I'm used to dressing so can you can you tell me a little bit about how you how you actually identify yourself and and um, how this uh, kind of straddling of a couple different cultures has influenced your life over over time
1: uh
2: That's a good question, you know, it has a long answer. Um, When I went back to India when I was 12, I have to say I felt very American when I went back. I, uh, you know, for those who, you know, uh, will read my book or have read my book, I was very much into American pop culture. You know, rock and roll music, bubblegum, you know, uh, all, you know, all the TV shows, Ozzy and Harriet, you know, American (laughs) Bandstand. And so when I went back, uh, the first uh, year was extremely difficult. I felt like I didn't fit in. Um, A lot of things were forced upon me. Um, You know, I had to give up all my American clothes and i had to start wearing a half sari when i was you know barely 12 or 13 you know told to cover um you know the upper part of my body without knowing why and i was always admonished you know if i let the sari slip a little bit you know and then you know in the time uh in a few years after that you know i joined, you know i was in school of course um you know it was confusing for my classmates as well because I had this American accent and they had never met an Indian girl who had been abroad and didn't understand a word I said you know and I was an outsider in school uh, but there was always uh, a need in me to belong I guess so Um, you know, I joined all the various clubs, the debate club, the sports club, um, and I always had a sense of humor. So, um, you know, that kind of won them over. And um, I made uh, friends with, I guess there were like five or six girls in our group. And um, so over the years, um, I actually shed my American accent. I couldn't see myself in anything but a sari um and uh when I was joining what's called pre-university uh I loved wearing a sari you know it was almost as if every trace of being american had just uh disappeared in some sense you know um so I don't know, I found the sari very beautiful. I felt comfortable in it. And when I, after I got married and I came back uh, to New York, um, I actually felt a stranger in New York, having been brought up uh, in New York for 12 years. Uh, when I landed and I wound up going to NYU as an undergraduate, there were boys in the class and I had been in an all girls school I hadn't been around boys at all and, you know, didn't even know my husband that well. And I was a chemistry major and there were very few girls in chemistry at the time. There were only four of us. And everybody, there were boys, and they would touch you the sort of the American way of hi, Basu, and giving me a hug, and I would immediately shy away, and I would say, "No, I'm married. Don't touch me." <laughs> and I remember one one guy wanted to ask me out. I didn't even know what that meant. I had never dated in my life, and I said, "No, I'm married. I have to go home." And he said, if you don't want to go out with me, just say so. You don't have to tell me you're married. <laughs> and I said, but I am, because we don't wear a ring. We wear like a wedding chain. And, I mean, how would he know? But um, I always felt uh, for many, many years uh, that I was always on the outside looking in. Um, I wouldn't know. There were parts of me that were very American and parts of me that were very Indian. But um, I wouldn't say they were integrated uh, parts of myself. Mm. They were very distinct and in some sense almost mutually exclusive. And I found that very difficult, uh, both emotionally um, and also uh, I guess when I went back to India, when I started talking, especially like in the 70s, uh, about women's liberation, and my mother was mortified, even though she was a well-educated woman and quite independent herself. She would say, you know, don't bring all those ideas here. Nobody understands what you're talking about. Um, And I always felt, you know, why can't we talk about these things? and then i would learn to keep my mouth shut and i had this way of uh, i don't know what word to use i would slip in and out of these roles pretty easily i would go to my in-laws who were extremely orthodox which reminded me of my grandfather's house and i would obey everything they asked me to do no matter how much i resented it inwardly i resented it but i i, I did Mm-hmm. what I was told to do, um, then I would come back to New York and I would resent that I behaved that way in, in India. Like, you know, why didn't I stand up for myself? So uh, if truth be told, there was a struggle for most of my life and it took me a long time uh, to see uh, myself as an integrated whole. To be able to embrace the Indian in me as well as what you know, I would call either Western or American in me, uh, and the sari is uh, something that I think I cling on to as a part of my Indian identity. Uh, I always felt that if I somehow cut my hair, got rid of uh, you know the bindi and Got rid of the sorry, um, it wouldn't be me. I've never done that. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, my mother was rather strict about clothing and bearing one's body and everything else. So uh, I never felt comfortable in pants. And I was very nervous when I first started yoga many years ago and I had to wear pants. (laughs) I didn't even know where or what to buy. I, (laughs) you know, I would look at everybody else and what they were wearing. And I would say to myself, I don't think I can wear those things. And, um, when I went to India, I had the tailor <laughs> stitch all those kurtas really loose. I told him nothing tight, nothing tight. you know. And I said, I have to make sure that if I lift my arms, I, I don't want any belly button showing. Or <laughs> um, and I was afraid to even step out of my apartment building wearing Western clothes. I always felt, oh my God, people will be staring at me. Uh, And it took many years before I felt comfortable um, wearing, you know, uh, sweats in the top to yoga. Um, And the sari is my natural dress. You know, it has been um, since I was 16 and in 70, going to be 73 this year. So I've been wearing it that many years. (laughs)
1: It's amazing. Exactly. Well, it, it
0: looks beautiful on you. So, I'm, oh, thank you. <laughs>
2: I can't see myself in any other way. Yeah, <laughs> I just can't.
0: You know, it's in it, it, it's interesting. You you say that about you know the the, the belly button region and in all these things and the, and having your clothes made loose for you for your yoga practice because um, you know the way I was taught. Uh, a stanga uh, and of course, everybody you know needs to make their own decision with this and where they're comfortable with with their with their clothing and the, the way they appear in a yoga class but my my teacher was you know always said you know less is more like the more of your your actual body I can see, especially the um the middle region around around the navel, the waist is is important because if there's a lot of fabric there you know, they can't, uh, in this case, it was she, she can't see if I'm actually like squeezing anything yeah. there or anything's moving. You know, I could just be relaxing and kind of, kind of faking it. But, uh, <laughs> but I, but I've, I've trusted throughout the years that you're not faking it. So I've never had any. No, I'm not faking it. So then tell me, uh, since, since you mentioned yoga, uh, you know, I know you, you, you'd done yoga before you, before you met me and, all, and therefore before you came to an Ashtanga practice. Okay. Um, how, how did you come about uh, starting yoga and then how, how did you manage to walk your way into my room one, one fateful <laughs> morning?
2: <laughs> well, fortunate day. Um, I started yoga in, I guess it was 1997. I sort of remember that because I had had um, some surgery and I was recovering and I wanted something. uh, You know, uh, I had tried aerobics and I didn't like that. I didn't like loud music in the morning and uh, that just wasn't for me. And um, so um, when NYU had the Coles Recreation Center, which has now been demolished, you know, uh,
0: Oh, that big construction project on Bleecker over... Right.
2: That used to be the Kohl's Sports Center. Oh, yes. And that was built, I think, in the 70s. Uh, in any case, I went over there and I saw there were yoga classes and I thought, why not? Let me see what it's like. Uh, and I had a very good teacher at the time. Uh, and I liked the practice, um, the breathing, um, you know, I found very beneficial. Um, Uh, I liked the stretches, you know, I just felt that this was something that I could manage uh, to do. Uh, The only difficulty uh, with the Coles was, you know, it was inconsistent uh, when teachers came and left. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't an easy work environment, and I guess there was some politics, whatever, but, Mm -hmm. so there would be other teachers and then you'd have to get used to their style. Uh, there was a lot of chanting, and at times I didn't quite go for that, you know, because it would be too much of the session, because I would, I really wanted to sort of get my body moving a little bit. And in any case, I, I practiced there for many years, um, and then Coles uh, was closed, and um There was somebody who was in my yoga class there, long story short, who had been to Sacred Sounds and said that she loved it. You know, she didn't tell me what practice, but she said, I just love going there. It's so clean and um, it's really very good. You should try it sometime. So I had already had a membership at Kohl's, you know, and I said, well, let that membership run out. You know, I'm not going to renew it anymore. So I came to Sacred Sounds um, and I went into the yoga, I don't know what kind of yoga, but it uh, took place at 7.30 in the other room. Mm -hmm. But um, I also found when I was in there, there was a lot of music, you know, um, and I didn't care for it and there wasn't, any individual attention being paid, you know, many people who were there seemed to be, you know, uh, I don't know, more in tune with this than I was, you know, I sort of felt like I couldn't keep up, it was more about speed. Mm. So I came out of there, and I don't know if I was talking to somebody at the front desk, I don't think it was Stephanie, but um, I was standing there, and I said, "Is there any other kind of yoga that you offer that doesn't have music?" And Abby, you know, mm-hmm. um, was sitting on the sofa uh, in the reception area, and she suddenly got up and she said, um, "Have you ever tried Ashtanga?" And I said, "I don't even know what that is." And you, I know what Ashtanga means, but I said, "No," I said, "No. What is that?" Mm -hmm. And then she said, you know, why don't you come and just try it? And um, she said, you know, it might, you know, it's tailored to you for the individual. Um, You know, you might enjoy it. So I tried your class. (laughs) And uh, in the beginning, I have to be honest, I was just intimidated. (laughs) I just... I mean, again, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't understand, I think, some of the principles underlying Ashtanga. I saw everybody there doing, you know, their their own thing, and it seemed... Uh, I don't know. Everybody looked like they were longtime practitioners, and I when I saw that, I thought, "Oh, you know." Uh, and it's a bad thing to do. I know it rationally that I shouldn't compare myself to others and look at them. But I remember coming home and telling my husband, "I said these people. I said they're like pretzels, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I said they could twist into any shape, and I said I don't know if I can do that, you know." But what I liked is when you came over and you explained things to me, and um, I think you gave me two or three positions. I had to do each one five times. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I didn't first get like sort of the, uh, you know, the repetition of uh, the pose. I thought, God, how many times do I have to do this? You know, why five? You know, why does he make me do this five times? And then there was a sequence. And I remember, uh, but I got used to it. You know, then, um, actually, you may not believe this, but I started dreaming of the position. Because I was a bit, you know, apprehensive. And I said, I can't afford to go in there tomorrow without knowing how (laughs) the sequence of these positions. I Uh, said, I think he's going to get angry if I do it the wrong way. (laughs) Uh, And so I internal, I, I, every time you taught me something new, I would play it back in my mind Mm. and I would imagine myself doing those things, you know, and then I would try to remember, you know, left and right. And then this, and then, um, You know, as time went on, I, uh, you know, I remembered, you know, I also teach the Gita sometimes in my course, believe it or not. Uh, When we talk about technology, I talk a lot about letting go of the material aspects of life. Um, And there is, I think, one teaching or it's like discipline in action. Yeah. And that's what came to mind when I really uh, got into the practice. Um, that was what I would say to myself. It's discipline and action, all right. And that, and then I uh, let go. Tried uh, at least to let go of some of the fear in me. Um, you know, I I think it was, uh, and I think it, it's something that's part of my personality. Is uh, not that I need to be successful, but. Um, I guess there is sort of a fear of failing at something. And even though I have failed at many things, I'm determined uh, that I will succeed in whatever it is I haven't accomplished. I'm slow, but uh, I think I once told you, like, I'm the tortoise, like you're turtling your tank. <laughs> I'm the tortoise in the race, you know, I will get there. But it will take me time. and then. Then uh, again, what really warmed me uh, to the practice is uh, the people uh, in the room. I miss them now because I haven't been able to practice for a while. You know, just before the uh, the virus uh, lockdown and all that, I was just pl- I was just planning to go for physical therapy on my knee, and I can't go now.
1: Mm. And
2: so. Uh, I feel a a loss, you know. I really miss everybody and I miss the practice. But there's a warmth in that room, uh, which I came to uh, respect, admire. You know, I uh, was able to have a few of you over for lunch and... uh, I I never thought at my age that I uh, would make uh, or at least be part of a community. I've been parts of many communities in my life, and this was a new one for me. Mm. And most of most of all of you are much younger than I am. But there's a respect in the room that I appreciate, uh, and there's a care, there's a concern um, that. I did not anticipate. I didn't have that in any of my other, uh, you know, yoga practices over the years. And I cherish that. I think that's rare to have. And of course, you know, you make it happen. Uh, And I remember once (laughs) telling, I was so funny. I said to Abby, I said, he just taught me something. And I said, I can't remember where it comes in the sequence. And I said, if I do it, out of sequence is he going to yell at me and she said no michael won't yell at you he'll stare at you (laughs) (laughs) and you'll know you're not doing it correctly (laughs) (laughs) and but i don't know what happened i did i was doing it wrong for a couple of classes and you didn't say anything so i said i must be doing it right then on the third time you said and we're doing it this way now? <laughs> and I said, Oh. No one... <laughs> because what I well, I don't know. I mean I can't read your mind, but I think you push us to sort of autocorrect. That's what I call it.
1: That yeah. at some
2: point we will think and say to ourselves, We're not doing this.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a, I think there's a lot of uh, autocorrection in in the practice and and i think it's a really beautiful thing that you know you can (coughs) as a teacher you you have to make a couple a few decisions about how much you want to involve yourself in each person's personal practice you know and uh and of course that is very much geared geared to the individual so some people i'm more involved with than others but um there is a great deal of uh Of of figuring it out for yourself, yes. And I think part of it, part of my job, is to sit back and and allow people to do that, and try not to meddle unless it's unless it's a necessary thing. Right.
2: That's what I. uh, And sometimes, if you know, I will observe like the sequence in someone else and say, okay, uh, I got it. <laughs> you now. Uh, but no, it's a very uh, warm and loving community. And um, <clears throat> I actually ran into uh, Julia with masks oh, yeah. on. I was surprised. Well, I think she recognized me because of the sari. See, that's an advantage during <laughs> this when we're all... <laughs> wearing masks you know and I recognized her and so it was so great you know and it's so funny me me who grew up you know not shouldn't touch anybody my first instinct was to give her a hug and then I realized I can't do that so I went towards her and then I said I'm sorry and I said I just want to say hi." (laughs) and so I've been in touch with a few of the people in our class so that means a lot you know
0: Good. It, it's so it's so inter- I mean, I'm having, you know, this constant struggle now trying to trying to keep a community together and keep a community going and viable during this during this time when we can't actually physically be together. It's yeah. it, it it's very hard, but it's also very um, eye opening in into, you know, what really matters between people. Uh, and kind of the exchange that the relationships that you have between people is that they they don't you know they're not uh just because you're not physically present does not mean that the relationship ends right uh, you know it, it's those bonds are still there um which which i think is really fascinating
1: <clears throat>
0: so um why uh you you've mentioned you're getting getting off the the yoga topic now. I think we've done that. So um, uh, you mentioned your book a couple times, which I'm very happy you did. Uh, your book is called All on My Own Terms. Yes, on My Own Terms by Vasu Varadan. You can uh, you can look that up and you can order it. Uh, though I believe Amazon is you know only shipping essentials right now, so it might take a long time. I <laughs>
1: think <for doing it. laughs>
2: books now, you know, because I. I just ordered this book uh, uh, that was written way before the uh, pandemic by Lawrence Wright. I think it's called End of October. And it's supposed to be a real page turner. In any case, that came pretty quickly. So, uh, And yeah, that was the other thing uh, that really uh, warmed my heart no end is a lot of the people in our uh, Ashtanga group, our community came to a couple of my book readings. Uh, and I never thought I would see them there and they all showed up
1: and I was just
2: so, so happy,
1: yeah. I
0: don't think, I don't think you quite uh, understand how important you are to many of the people in that room.
2: They, no, I guess I don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they they very. I feel much, like an outlier. <laughs> no, they very much look up to you, and I think that you know it, it's kind of this thing. You you are currently you are my my eldest student, and That's so
1: cool. you.
0: And though I have several students over the age of sixty, you 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 know you hold that position, and so and then i do have a bunch of younger younger students and i think those younger students are you know they're walking you know, ashtanga's hard you know there's there's not there's no if ands or but about that but i think these younger people walk in and they're like well she's here she can do it if she can <laughs> do it then and i better get my ass in gear you know because <laughs> like what am
1: i doing with my life
2: <laughs> yeah you know, i remember you know, because we sometimes talk afterwards, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, by the perception. And, you know, I tell them, I said, oh, gosh, I said, I, you know, those twisting things that, you know, I said, I'm just never going to get there, you know. And I remember once somebody said, if I can do what you're doing at your age, I will be really <laughs> happy. I said, okay, <laughs> you made my day. <laughs> Yeah. And what's nice is everybody has a nice sense of humor in there. You know, I think that's important. You have
0: to; otherwise, it's torture, don't you think?
2: <laughs> Not torture, but <laughs> <It's> difficult.
0: <laughs> you have to laugh about it.
2: So, <laughs> so tell me why? For what
0: reason did you write this this book, Vasu? You're uh, you don't you don't strike me as a very uh, narcissistic or egoic person, so I can't. Oh why why did you write a book about yourself
2: (laughs) because uh it's a you know the story uh i think you know coming to this country as a four-month-old baby growing up here then going back to india then coming back here um i used to tell sort of snippets you know of my of my life to friends you know i love to entertain i love to cook so we always you know over the years um um, you know i'm the talker my husband's more on the quiet side and everybody would always say to me you should really write a book this is you know there were funny things there were sad things and it was a story inside of me that in many ways i was burning to tell Mm -hmm. not so much for me but I felt that um, it was a look at the life of an, of an immigrant um, a, of a different era, you know, uh, especially with everything that's going on with immigrants, et cetera. Uh, you know, especially, you know, under the current administration, you know, everybody, you know, was talking about immigrant stories, and I just felt like what was important is that the younger generation, I was initially thinking of South Asians, uh, not Indians per se, but South Asian immigrants, particularly girls. And I was thinking of uh, my story giving them um, some courage, I guess, um, you know, to face some of the conflicts uh uh, that they're facing currently, um, I felt it was important to give that kind of history, which I felt was lacking. Uh, there have been many um, Indian writers, you know, uh, Jumpalahiri, Hiri, Namesake, you know, she wrote, which is also about the conflicts in the uh, Indian immigrant family who come to this country. But it's uh, the generation of the 70s, you know, takes place when the parents come in the 70s. Uh, And there was, as far as I know, very little written about families who came to America in the mid-1940s like my own. Mm -hmm. And um, the fact that, you know, here we are in New York, everybody knows what dosa is, this and that. And when my parents came, uh, everything had to be shipped from home. Nothing was available, you know, no Indian uh, lentils or temple, there was nothing, you know, that, uh, you know, it was just people's homes. So one reason I wanted to write the book was to reach out to that audience. Uh, the second reason that again, that I wrote the book and I do say this, um, uh, is, you know, I had lost my son on, nine uh, eleven, and, um, uh, Again, you know, it was a question of identity. Many people, I live in the NYU community, and many people didn't even know my name, but every time I walked by, they would say, oh, you see her in the Indian dress? It was her son, you know, who died. And I kept hearing this everywhere I went. Uh, I mean, people meant well, so I don't mean to say this, you know, uh, that I didn't understand, but I didn't want to be identified that way. Mm. Um, and uh, I went to India a few years after it all happened. And uh, I'm not a very religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And I went to the home of my uh, maternal grandparents, to the temple in Sriram. And I'm a strong devotee of the Lord Ranganatha, the God who lies on the snake and has Brahma coming out of his navel. Uh, Because my grandmother used to take me there every time I visited her. And it was a special place for us. And when I was there, I don't know, I had uh, the darshan, you know, and the priest looked at me. And normally they rush people. You know, they say, okay, okay, you know, you've seen the God, you know, move along. But he said to me, I think you need to pray so you can stay a while. And I was surprised. He didn't know me or anything. And I just felt it was like a sign and something, I don't know, as I said, I sort of felt as if um, the God was giving me advice that when I go back, I need to go back to something that would nurture my soul, not anybody else's that, you know, I'm a teacher by profession. I have been for nearly 35 years uh, I'm a mother, you know, I'm a wife. I'm, uh, I would say, you know, most of my life I've been in the, giving, in the giving role. I'm a caretaker, I care for my students, you know, I'm more used to giving than taking. And uh, so when I came back, I said, What is it, Basu, that you really enjoy doing that you haven't done for yourself? And I thought immediately of writing, because I used to write uh, many years ago. And just on a lark, I took a course at NYU um, in the uh, adult, I don't know, it's called the School of Professional Studies. And it was a creative nonfiction class. And I went in there and nobody knew me, which was good. I didn't (laughs) want anybody to know me and I didn't want to know anybody else. And I started writing again. And the teacher took a particular interest in my stories, and when the course was over, she said, have you ever thought of publishing your stories? And I said, no. I said, I'm just writing. You know, I said, I uh, just want to get these stories down. So from there, we, she said, I'll be willing to work with you privately. I can see, um, let's see what we can do with this material. And uh, in spite of the sadness and, uh, you know, the void that, uh, you know, will always be with me, the writing allowed me, uh, without getting too sentimental, it it allowed me to become a person um, that I solely created on the page, if that makes sense. Um, Nobody could... I didn't have to have a name or a label. I just was who I wanted to be. Uh, And the words on the page uh, were mine. And, um, you know, Orhan Pamuk, the Turkish writer, uh, had won the Nobel Prize, I think in 2004 or five, somewhere around there. And he had a beautiful speech called, uh, My Father's Suitcase. And one of the things he says is, you know, you know, who is a writer? And he said, there are times when all you want is the company of words. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly where I was at that point in time. And I, that was the company I sought. It was the company of language and words. And uh, they always sustained me in the past whenever I had been through some difficulties in life, um, I always turned to books, like many people do, nothing unique about it. But um, for me, uh, that's really where the memoir uh, came from, from that deep place inside. Um, And I tried, uh, even though it is uh, about me, I was hoping that when people read it, that embedded in my story were the stories of many other people. And with the letters I've received and the email and, you know, um, responses, many people have said that, you know, and not just women, men as well, Uh, you know, people whose families have been uprooted, you know, either, you know, uh, during the, you know, uh, time of Hitler, People who have had to emigrate for other reasons—they uh, always say, you know, um, you know, I can relate so much to what we went through, um, and it seems to have appealed across generations, which uh, really is very gratifying. Is that younger people, uh, you know, people in their, uh, especially South Asian immigrants. Uh, as young as, you know, 14, 15, you know, as well as, you know, older people have always said, you know, um, oh, I can see my story in yours and your story in mine. And I think that uh, that means a lot to me. Uh, uh, Because, as I said, it it wasn't just uh, my story. I would like to think of it as um, the stories of many people who perhaps haven't put it down yet mm. uh, uh, they carry it with them
0: It very much comes across that way when when I read it i mean it was I kept seeing myself in in your story, and of course I'm not an immigrant at all, but you know I come from a I come from a divorced family, which I kind of you know matched up with uh, the loss of your father and also, um, you know, the, the back and forth of, of your dad and, and that sort of thing. And there were, there were, there were just so many uh, very, very human things in, in the book that uh, I think al- almost anyone could, could see themselves in that situation or mold that situation towards theirs. It was, it was really a wonderful read. And I will go back and read it again eventually. Um, so I would like to know, um, we're kind of running towards closing this up, because we've been talking for a while. Um, what are what are your hopes for the for the next generation, for the for the people growing up now?
2: Oh, what are my hopes? <laughs> um Somewhere i'm hoping you know the the younger generation, I guess even going back to my father, you know that i don't know that maybe they'll strive for a more just world in many ways. Um, it's not just the United States, but you know I teach young people, you know, um, I teach college students, and um, I remember in the fall. Uh, and even before when um, Trump was elected, many of them, you know, we talk about information, you know, in the media class, and many of them feel like they don't have any agency. They go, "What are we supposed to do? We don't know what's real news, fake news, um, etc." And um, you know, I tell them that they can't give up so easily. All right, that. You know, I don't talk about my personal life to them, but I often felt like if I had succumbed to my grief, I would not be where I am today. So I think you have, you know, my advice to them, you know, and I gave a talk, in fact, to young South Asians earlier, uh, I think it was last year, and I was telling them that they need to define themselves. You know, I had too much of my life circumscribed for me and I think it's important you know that you don't have to choose you don't have to say oh I'm either Indian or American you know that you can uh, but you know I like to use the term acculturate instead of assimilate (laughs) that you can retain the parts of cultures that you embrace Um, and I would like to see you know a more just world you know the idea a more moral world I think, you know, we need to, you know, I make my students read the Gita in that class. And I was very surprised when a few of them told me that after reading the Gita, they actually got off a lot of their social media sites. They felt that they were too much into building their own ego Everything was about pop, being popular with their friends and, you know, all the stuff that goes with social media. And many of them said that after reading the Gita, it uh, it it helped them, at least on the path, to let go of their ego, to be more disciplined, to be able to seek uh, deeper meaning in life. Uh, I was quite surprised, you know, when they said that, but... Um, you know, I don't know. And as I said, I've also been blessed with students who are very altruistic. You know, I did that project on the Ramayana. All of those students won awards this year, at graduation, and I wrote to them and they wrote back. And uh, they want to make a difference in the world. And uh, that means a lot to me uh, as a person and as a teacher. Um, I don't want us uh, to give up in spite of these difficult times that we're in. I I really feel, um, you know, we need to stay in some sense, you know, without being, sound like a cliche, but really true to ourselves and to others. I think that's important, you know. And the Gita has always been... um, Sort of a source of uh, guidance for me uh, in in everything that I do. Uh, I have found it very sustaining uh, in the sad times, mm. uh, and uh, very um, like even during the good times, um, I still return to it. So
1: beautiful.
0: I'm I'm returning to it right now so <laughs>
2: yeah I know uh, you you did the devotion right you have six more chapters uh who's uh,
0: I've been I've been hopping around <clears throat> with it in the in the lectures I've been doing we did bhakti yoga last uh yesterday evening um and I, you know I just talk for about an hour and people ask questions we do little things because I'm I'm no expert on the gita I'm just you know
2: yeah i'm at a i'm you know uh, if the high, i'm signed up for the high school project so we're going to do the mahabharata in the fall hopefully if
1: everything
2: mm-hmm. goes well and i've included uh teachings of the gita in that as well i'm hoping to join you you know the difficulty is the timing my uh, my husband's in the middle of finishing up so sometimes he's sort of hogging everything and <laughs> <laughs> but I'm hoping to make it one of these sessions.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Thank
2: you, Michael. Pleasure to see you. Talk to you.
1: Yeah. Well, take care, Michael. Thank you so much for having me.